This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. This is Chris Arns and your host of Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. I am thrilled to have back on the program uh, somebody who has really become one of my favorite guests. I don't agree with him on everything, but I think that he is well-informed, fascinating, and uh, just just a wonderful uh, communicator and guest. And his name is Angus Stewart. He is the pastor of Covenant Protestant Reformed Church of Ballymena, Northern Ireland. And today we are going to be addressing part two of a discussion that I think warranted a, a second uh, discussion. Uh, this is part two of our topic are all humans created in the image of God, a controversial and unique position examined. And as we found out uh, the last time he was on discussing this topic, uh, although today it may be a unique, um, perhaps even uh, unusual uh, view, it was not so in history. It has very weighty support in the confessions of the Reformed faith and many great figures from history. But it's my honor and privilege to welcome you back to Iron Trepan's Iron Radio, Angus Stewart. I'm very glad to be back, Chris. And you convinced me that this topic needed a second session because it's a great topic and there's a lot, lot more to say. I'd like to quote Romans 8, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That is the destiny of all the elect, of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. So it not only is the truth of the image of God a vital issue with the creation of man, not only is Jesus Christ the image of God, he's called that in at least three places in the New Testament, Not only are we regenerated in the image of God, there are loads of texts for that too, and sanctified by growing in the image of God. And not only is our resurrection spoken of uh, in terms of the image and likeness of God in Psalm 17 and 1 Corinthians 11, but the whole work of God with the believer has the goal and result that we're going to be conformed to God's image in Jesus Christ. Praise God. Um, well, I think it would be wise. Uh, you don't have to perhaps go into as lengthy an explanation as you did the last time. But uh, I think it would be wise for those of our listeners who missed part one of this discussion to have you explain what would probably be viewed as the Achilles heel to your position. I'm not saying it is the Achilles heel, but it would probably be viewed as the Achilles heel to your position by many uh, Christians who disagree with you that only the regenerate are created in the image of God. And uh, this is, of course, uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And that's the King James Version uh, reading of that text, Genesis 9-6, and uh, therefore, those that disagree with you on this position, on this text, or on this this uh, doctrine, uh, would say, well, 
if it is uh, a violation of God's law, in fact, it's even a violation of God's law in the Decalogue itself, for a man to murder any man, not just a Christian man, but any man, uh, including children in the womb, uh, in an abortion. Uh, therefore, uh, this must mean that all men are created in the image of God, whether they are the elect, whether they are regenerate or not. So if you could explain your position uh, as you exegete this text here. Very good. I'll try to make my explanation this time a little bit fresher, and maybe even longer than last time. Okay. Here goes. First of all, the view that I'm taking of Genesis 9, verse 6 is, is no novelty. On our website, we have quotes from John Owen. That's a mighty quote. You can't even infer it from Genesis 9, verse 6. Homer Hooksima, I'm going to add another one by him on that subject. Uh, A.D.R. Pullman, Cornelis Vonk, who wrote a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. Class Gilder, the, theo- the theologian who founded the liberated churches and was arrested by the Nazis during World War II. Edmund Schlink, a German. Robin D. Fish, they're just some, some theologians who hold that view. The Canons of Dort in Heads 3 and 4, the very first few articles. The first article states that man was made in the image of God. Then it teaches that next article that man lost that image, that he's fallen and depraved, and then man begat children in his own likeness. But let me get now to some of those exegetical issues. Genesis 9 verse 6 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. The first thing we should notice is that this text is appealed to an awful, awful lot. And that's fine. The difficulty is that it's appealed to without exegesis. And what we need to notice is that, first of all, the phrase, for in the image of God made he man, gives a reason. And when this text is quoted, most people don't even think, is it the reason why... Is it referring to the murdered person? Whoso sheds man's blood should be killed, for in the image of God made he the victim, the murdered one. Or is it saying that the person who executes the murderer should do so? By man shall his blood be shed, for, this is where he gets the authority from, in the image of God made he man. So is it referring to the victim or the executioner? Or you could even read it, and some have approached it this way, from the point of view of the murderer, as explaining why this is particularly bad. So here's one point of saying that this text is referred to, and people don't even give any thought or even compare that. But then the second thing about the text is, the text does not say, in the image of God is man. It says, in the image of God made he man. It's a reference not to man being in the image of God now, but it's a reference to the creation of man in the image of God in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. To refresh our readers' memories, the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1, man is created in the image of God. 
Genesis 3 is the fall. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 says, God made man upright. There's Genesis 1, his creation. But they've sought out many inventions. He's not like that anymore. He's not upright. He's sought out many inventions. Then comes Genesis 4. You knew it was going to come after Genesis 3. But Genesis 4 deals with the murder of Cain. Cain's murder of Abel. Fratricide. And 1 John chapter 3 deals with this. And 1 John chapter 3 tells us that Abel was righteous. He was born again. He was a child of God. And Cain, 1 John 3 verse 12, was of that wicked one. He was a child of the devil. In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. So here's Cain. He's a child of the devil. And children look like their father. Children bear the image of their father. And Abel, he's a child of God. He's in the image of God because he was regenerated. He was a believer. Then we come to Genesis chapter 5. And Genesis 5 verse 3 tells us that Adam begat children in his own likeness after his image. Adam did not beget children in the image of God. Adam beget children in his own likeness, after his image. And when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, it says, As we, believers, have borne the image of the earthy, Adam, before we were converted, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, Christ, with glorified bodies in the future. And then you come to Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and there's one thing that Genesis 6, 7, and 8 say with regard to the flood. It's that man isn't very good. There's not much reflection of man in the ones whom God destroyed in the flood. Especially because Genesis uh, 6, verse 5 says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the, in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Moses is laying it on thick there. The imagination of the thoughts of his heart. Every one of them is evil. Only. Continually. That's the wickedness of man. Great in the earth. Then after the flood, we read in Genesis 8, verse 21, the same story. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. In fact, if man, including the people who were destroyed in the flood, really was in the image of God, you would wonder why it would repent the Lord use the language of Genesis 6, verse 6, why to repent the Lord that ever made man in the heart, and why these people grieved him in his heart, and he repents that he's even made them. This is verse 7. And then we come to Genesis 9, verse 6, and it says, In the image of God made he man. Referring back to Genesis 1, and it's telling us why we're allowed to kill animals for food, and why a human being who kills a human being, another human being, murder, or an animal which kills a human being ought to be executed. It's telling us that mankind is radically different from the animals because mankind was made in the image of God. And this teaches us two things. One, that man's the pinnacle of creation, created in fellowship with God on the sixth day to rule over the earth. And it tells us, secondly, 
that man being created in the image of God is a different order of creature than the fish or the birds or the insects or the animals because man has a capacity to bear the image of God. You can't add the image of God to a frog or a dog, but man you can't. Everything okay, brother? <laughs> you're surprised at many arguments I could come up with there. Uh, you're, you're making a very good case, I have to admit. Uh, yeah. And by the way, I was not militantly opposed to this view that you have before the, the first part of our discussion. Uh, I just was unaware of the view that you had. <clears throat> now, let me ask you a question. Why is it that... This view, in your opinion, from what you've heard uh, from the writings and from the lips of your opponents on this issue, who are reformed and who are very, perhaps even meticulous about their uh, confessional strictness, about being full subscriptionists uh, to the major confessions like the the three forms of unity. Uh, what do, explanations do they give for not holding your view that only the regenerate are made in the image of God? Um, various things could be said, and it would probably vary from person to person. Um, I would guess that for many, it's just something they've never really thought about. They've never really thought, uh, I'll say this while trying to be condescending, and, and I'll say it about myself, I, I'd never really given it any thought. And then I began to look at Genesis 9, verse 6, and I saw, saw that it didn't say that we're not to kill people because everybody is in the image of man. And then I looked at Genesis 5, verse 3, and it doesn't say that Adam begat children in the image of God. It says that he begat children in his own image, a fallen image, a totally depraved image. And Romans 5, verse 12, says that as in Adam all die, and I'm conflating it with 1 Corinthians 15. So, in large part, they hadn't um, thought about it. That's, that's one thing. That's, that's a suggestion, a proposal. Um, another one is that the other view in the 21st century is well nigh ubiquitous. You just, you just hear it. And so, few people really look at Genesis 9, verse 6. I mean... I was reading today Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, a key textbook. And Burkhoff thinks that Genesis 9, verse 6, and the two other passages teach that everybody's in the image of God. But he even offers no exegesis of the passage passages either. Just, just asserts it. And here was a man who was aware, and who mentions a number of theologians who differed with it, but he offers no, no view, or no, no arguments for his own, for his own position. So those are some of the factors. That's why I've written an article on our website, that's on the Image of God page. It's called The Image of God and Man, A Reformed Reassessment. We need to reassess, look at the text. And this is, this is a very strange thing, and I pointed out last time that there are some 17 texts which speak of the image of God in the Bible. And the Genesis 9 verse 6 is the, the best one you can use for it. But unless you already hold that view, you read into the text what isn't there, you're begging the question. But so there's 17 texts, and there's one 
that the possible the one that could be read that way. There are all or two, but I think they're even weaker. Um, and they beg the question as well. But what is wrong with much of the Christian world that we hear so little about the image of God in, in their terminology, the narrow sense? Get regained and regeneration, wrought in us by sanctification, by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, the image of God. Why is it we hear so, so little about that? The whole thing's totally disproportionate. And earlier today I, I read a, a book that I often turn to in times like these, The Catechism of the Catholic Church. I don't turn to it for comfort, Chris, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> I never thought for a minute that you did. <laughs> Chris, you thought, you thought I'd lost my marbles completely. <laughs> this is the position of the Roman Catholic Church, and it's bang up to date. And if you look at its treatment on the image of God, you'll see it is hardly anything to say about believers being in the image of God. Reference after reference after reference is to everybody being in the image of God. And for Rome, and for the Eastern Orthodox, and for the Arminians, and for liberal Protestantism in general, the gospel in these false systems is reduced to God loves everybody, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and everybody's in the image of God. And this is, this is the alternative gospel which is being pushed from liberalism. And this is another reason why we as Reformed people should examine examine the tradition and realize there are better exegetical arguments for it than anyone reali- than most realize. It's deeply embedded in the Reformed tradition. It's the historic position of Lutheranism and the Reformed creeds, where you have to, you know, in the, in the creeds you have to be more clearly and explicitly biblical. And the Reformed creeds don't talk about the image of God in a broader or wider sense. It's just not there, that terminology or any terminology like it isn't found. The Reformed creeds define the image of God after Ephesians 4, verse 24, and Colossians 3, verse 10, in terms of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness as an ethical, spiritual power. And so instead of philosophizing about this this image of God, referring to everybody and trying to pour new contents in it, we have a definition in the Bible. Chris, for your um, radio interview tonight... I have arranged in my own mind, and here I'm going to lean heavily on another article which I wrote and bring in fresh material, a whole host of arguments, theological arguments. Could, could I go through these, Chris, one you, by one and yes, build the case, sort of like a lawyer? Yes, you can. But before you do that, we, I just want to take one listener question because I think it's a very good one. Uh, Susan Margaret in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania, asks, What is it exactly to be made in the image of God? I think that's a very good question, uh, because that really uh, explains a lot of what we are discussing. Susan has asked, what is it to be made in the image of God? Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. The idea of an image is that it images something else. Now, for a Dodge, for the Dodge car... There's a stylized ram. So when people see that ram, and I'm, I'm not an American, but even I would recognize it, they think Dodge cars. Well, man is an image of God, but he's not only an image of God that sort of 
doesn't look like it, but he's in the image and likeness of God. And that's what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, God made man in his image after his own likeness. And likeness is an image that corresponds to, so that man is like God, reflects him. And then, since Genesis 1 doesn't, exact, doesn't actually say in what way, how does God, does man image God? How is man like God, Adam and Eve in the beginning? Then we go to Colossians 3 verse 10 and Ephesians 4 verse 24, which talk about the renewing of the image of God. And G.C. Burkauer calls this the Reformed hermeneutic. You look at those two texts, and this is what all the Reformed creeds do, and this is what Reformed theologians do, although some bring in later on a little bit of some other broader sense. And you say, there it is. That's what the image of God is. Moral, spiritual, ethical virtues. So man, in creation, and also in Christ, is like God in that he has these virtues. And then there's a striking phrase in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, which talks about man, and is dealing with man in the church, in terms of worship and prayer before God. Man is called to imitate God. But it says there, he is, quote, the image and glory of God. And that's a powerful argument too. So that if man, we're dealing with man as created now, is in the image of God, and he's like God, since God is glorious, man is glorious too as created, and as in Jesus Christ. And Christ himself is called the image of God, and the express likeness of his person. And it talks about Christ as being the glory of God in that same context. Christ is the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, we're renewed after the image of God. It says we're changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, we read of the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ brings the glory of God in his face. So what I'm doing is saying that man's in the image of God, he's in the likeness of God, he looks like God, and it's a glorious image. And then to go further, if someone is in the image of God, or is in the likeness of God, or is in the glory of God, that person is the image of God. Not just a bearer, but is the image of God, is the likeness of God, and is the glory of God. And that's why the idea that everybody today, totally depraved men, unbelieving men and women, those who sat there outside Jesus Christ, are in the image of God. It can't be, because if you make them the image of God, then along with image goes likeness. So they image God, they're like God, and they are the glory of God. So here's Stalin, Hitler, unbelieving people. I picked a couple of, you know, particularly nasty ones, and I think Stalin. <laughs> probably even worse than Hitler, from, from what I've been reading recently. But Stalin, Hitler, Richard Dawkins are the image, likeness, and glory of God. Because this idea proves too much. That's, that's my argument. I answered Susan's question, and I also um, took the occasion to, to, to bat for the home side there, Chris, but you'll let me off with that. 
<laughs> well, uh, now you can continue with uh, your litany of evidence. Okay. Well, my first argument is the nature of the image of God. What the image of God is, and I have already appealed to Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4, verse 24. This is the standard definition the confessions have also said. But once you go for this idea of the image of God in a wider, broader sense, in which everybody is the image of God, and therefore the likeness of God, and everybody is the glory of God, the Bible doesn't define what this is. And whenever people put content into this broader sense of the image of God, or wider sense, they say things like morality, rationality, spirituality, personality, possession of memory, intellect, will, conscience, personhood, freedom, dignity, language, etc. These things are undoubtedly true of human beings. They're a bit abstract in the formulation, but they're undoubtedly true of human beings. We fully agree with them. We believe in the mannishness of man. But the problem is, there isn't anywhere in Scripture that teaches that these things are the image of God. It's just not there. You've got 66 books, you've got two testaments, you've got over a thousand chapters, and so on, but you haven't got any content for this. So that's the nature of the image of God. We know what the image of God is, we can prove it from the Bible, my position, but in the other argument, I mean, who's to say? And this is where this image of God becomes, in the hands especially of liberals, a wax nose. You can pour into this image of God practically whatever you want. And then you end up with people saying, well, homosexuals in the image of God, women ministers are in the image of God, and if there's anything else contrary to Scripture, you can argue for it. Well, God loves everybody. The fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of men, we're all in the image of God, and there we go. That's the argument, what I'm calling the argument from the nature of the image of God. Chris, I'm going to give you another N argument, if you're still with me. Yes, another what argument? A one that begins with the letter N. Oh, okay. Open the of the image of God to the number of the image of God. The number of the image of God. Because you don't read anywhere of two images of God. There's nowhere in the scriptures that says that the image, there's the image of God in two senses. This is based upon what I believe to be an erroneous reading of a few, one or possibly even a few texts. And then you pour into this broader sense the image of God content, which again isn't proved in the Bible. And then you never read in the Bible of two images of God or two senses of the image of God. And then think what happens to somebody who's elect, someone like myself, converted later in life. I start off, according to this theory, in the image of God in the broader sense. So, and then, so I have one image of God. Then I get converted, and I have two images of God. You know, like... You would expect that this really was biblical teaching, to, to see some of this in the Bible. So somebody went from one image of God to two images of God. And instead what you get is that man is in the image of corruptible Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, totally depraved, a child of the devil, walking in darkness, and anything. I mean, as one guy once said, man's sinfulness is blacker than anthracite. And then... And then he goes from this image of God, and he gets a second image of God. But, yeah, where do you you get this? And then G.C. Burkhardt points this out. How do you actually relate these two images? Because it's all very mechanical and not organic. And this duality of these two images, and he explores it in his book, Man, the Image of God, 
Nobody, including great theologians like Bavinck, who held the view which I'm controverting, have managed, despite all of Bavinck's immense theological knowledge and massive intellect, have managed to integrate these two things and relate them properly. You still end up with two things sitting side by side. The number of the image of God and the nature of the image of God. And then there's the idea of the image of God. That's my third argument. But in answer and Susan, I made that clear. Image of, image of God, likeness of God, glory of God in the Bible are all the same things. And it proves too much to say that the unbeliever is the image of God, is the likeness of God, is the glory of God. Chris, you're going to like this next one. This is my fourth argument. And I know I talk fast at the best of times, and I'm trying to get in because we only have two hours, Chris. Oh, I think you're doing a fine job with your pace and everything else. You, you, you can still follow me, and I'm not going to be responsible for anybody trying to listen to their radio, Chris, around around Pennsylvania, driving off the hedge. Strange <laughs> accent. Okay, this one, Chris, I call amazing incongruities and massive equivocations. Amazing incongruities and massive equivocations. So here we've got the unbeliever. He's supposedly the image of God, the likeness of God, and the glory of God, yet he doesn't worship the God of glory. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, but unbelievers who are supposedly in the image of God do not recognize Jesus Christ as the image of God. And instead, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, we read that those who are allegedly God's image bearers are, quote, blinded by Satan with regard to the light of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And then what happened at the cross was that 2,000 years ago, people who were allegedly the image, likeness, and glory of God crucified the Messiah, who's the perfect image, likeness, and glory of God. Are you feeling the force, Chris, and I hope our readers are too, of the amazing incongruities and massive equivocations? Let's go to the plain of Dura in Daniel chapter 3. Here are unbelievers, supposedly in the image of God, and they're bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Some image of God. If we look at Isaiah 46 verse 7, people who are supposedly God's image bearers are actually bearing images of idols, Baal and Nebo. If we look at Romans 1 verse 23, those who are the image and likeness of God worship images in the likeness of men, birds, beasts, and creeping things. They change the glory of God, those who are supposedly the image and glory of God, they change the glory of the incorruptible God into images of corruptible creatures. And then if we skip to the last books of the Bi book of the Bible, we have people who are supposedly the image of God, and they're actually worshipping the image of the beast, and bearing the mark of the beast. If you could, hold off right there, and when we return from our uh, middle way, or midway break, you could pick up right where you left off. So Angus, you could pick up right where you left off. Uh, you were going through a list of things that gave weight to your position that only the regenerate, only Christians, are made in the image of God. Yes. I argued from the nature of the image of God, that we have a definition of 
the image of God that fits with believers and Adam and Eve before the fall, but no definition of any sort of image of God from the Bible that unbelievers are supposed to be in. And then I noted that the Bible talks about the image or the likeness or the of God, but never the images or the likenesses of God. There only is one image of God in the Bible, not not two. And nobody goes from being the image of God in the brother sense, then they get converted, and then they get two images. And then I mentioned that the idea of the image of God is that image and likeness and glory are used together in these texts, and that the unbeliever, according to this, the view I'm opposing, is the image and the glory and the likeness of God. But Romans 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the image of God, broader sense idea, includes by scriptural necessity that they are the glory of God, yet the Bible says they've come short of it. Then we noted, fourth, some amazing incongruities. One more in this connection. What about Satan? As Martin Luther pointed out, if the image of God, in this alleged broader sense, consists of rationality and personality, the possession of intellect and will and creaturely freedom and language, then it follows necessarily that the devil is the image of God. He is the image of God, the likeness of God, and the glory of God. In fact, because he has such a good memory, powerful intellect, and resolute will, the devil has a much, much greater image of God in this alleged broader sense than any of us. And in Isaiah 14, verse 14, the king of Babylon, and he's speaking there as the mouthpiece of Satan, says, quote, I will be like the Most High. But this theory says resolutely, by necessity, this theory that everybody's in the image of God that consists in these uh, rationality and so on. This theory actually says that Satan is like the Most High, and he is the image of the Most High, whereas Satan only aspires to it in Isaiah 14, verse 14. But according to this theory, he's actually installed into that office. So it's not just all of humanity that's in the image of God, according to this theory, but also Beelzebub and his whole nefarious host. And yet I believe that does necessarily follow, and Martin Luther did too. Let's move to another argument. This is what we call, Chris, the argument from divine sonship. And here I'm going to mention four parties that everybody agrees are the image of God. Number one, the second person of the Trinity is the image of God the Father, and he's the eternal Son. So image and Son go together there. Then, with the Incarnation, Jesus Christ is both the image of God and the incarnate Son of God. So again, image and sonship. And then if we think of Adam and Eve created in the image of God, thirdly, Adam is called a son of God in Luke 3, verse 38, and therefore Eve's a daughter of God. There's a third instance, image and sonship. And then fourth, when we move to believers... We have been regenerated in the image of God, and we are the sons and daughters of God. So there's the pattern. All four parties are both the son or sons of God and the image of God, because sons look like their father. And God the Son is called the express image of God the Father in Hebrews 1, verse 15. But if unbelievers are the image of God, since you look like your father then we've got problems because Scripture declares 
that impenitent human beings are the seed of Satan, the old serpent. Genesis 3, verse 15. And the sons and daughters of the devil. And Jesus told the ungodly Jews who claimed that God was their father in John 8, he told them instead, you are of your father the devil, which makes those in unbelief the devil's sons and daughters. If he's the father and their sons and daughters. And the lust of your father you will do. You're going to image him because you're like him. And then Jesus went on to, to, to say that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And those outside of Christ, including ourselves, before we were converted, that's what we did. So there's the argument from sonship. And here, here's another thing, you see, because words have meaning, and you can define a word in a funny sort of way, but the word carries its own freight. If man is really in the image of God, then if everybody's in the image of God, then everybody is a child of God, and everybody, there's a brotherhood of man, a spiritual, universal brotherhood. And if everybody's in the image of God, then since the image of God is something good, I mean, that's what the word carries with it. Then what about total depravity? And the number of theologians and churches who argue that since we're in the image of God, we must have free will is amazing. And then we end up with this idea that, you know, man is the image, likeness, and glory of God, but then God must love them. And then if God loves them, and they still have rationality and a soul in, in hell or in the lake of fire, well then, is God sort of loving people in hell? And there's one theologian, Harry Bohr, who wrote a book called An Ember Still Glowing, Humankind as the Image of God. And I don't know what Erdman's were doing, but, but they published it. Erdman's published this in 1990. And Harry Bohr says, humankind as the image of God. Everybody, absolutely everybody, is the image of God. And there's a, and the point isn't quantity of image of God, it's quality. There's a little bit of the image of God in there. It's an ember still glowing. And he goes through every doctrine of the Reformed faith that's anywhere near this, and even the Christian faith, and overthrows the whole lot. And he says, the man's in the image of God. Well, you know what? God loves his image. People can be saved without hearing the gospel. And if man's in the image of God, well, then there can't be any reprobation, and there's no election, and there's no predestination. And you know what? He holds out the hope that ultimately everybody will be saved. But here's one for you, Chris. I found this one very interesting. Abraham Kuyper's son, Abraham Kuyper Jr., Abraham Kuyper Jr. believed that everybody was in the image of God, apart from the Antichrist. So, if everybody minus one is the image of God. <laughs> you know, that, that, it's always puzzled me, and I know that uh, Abraham Kuyper, and I don't know much about his son, but I'm assuming his son did believe in unconditional election and uh, did not believe that man had an unfettered free will uh, but it has always puzzled me when I have heard um, my uh, Calvinist hating fundamentalist friends or just uh, Christians in general who oppose the doctrines of sovereign grace and reform theology 
when they insist everybody has free will, but then when it comes to the Antichrist, they have to say, well, not him. <laughs> and they'll have to... And you know what's really funny, too, with regard to the Antichrist and Abraham Kuyper Jr.'s position, is that if you define, you know, the, the image of God in the broader sense as involving personality and intellect and, and will, well, the Antichrist, he's going to be able to, to rule rule the world. I mean... You were getting into eschatology, Chris. I could be in tr- troubled waters here again. But <laughs> anybody, anybody who can rule the world and all, get all the world to worship the image of the beast and so forth, and yet, I mean, he must have those things, those intellectual and abilities. But somehow or other, Abraham Kuyper says he he doesn't have it. Well, I don't know if you're finished with your list yet, but we do have another listener who has a question. If you're ready. Okay, I, I could throw in a couple of references to the Psalms, Chris. Okay, go ahead. I think our and we want to have questions too, but I think our listeners would, would be curious, would be impressed that there's a couple of references in the Psalms that teach our position too. Here's Psalm seventy three, Psalm seventy three, verse twenty. As a dream when one awaketh, so O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. God is here, he's not acting, as it were, to the observer. You know, God's not doing anything. But then he comes and acts, and he's like a man who awakes, and he despises their image, the image of the ungodly. And then the question is, if, if the unbeliever was in the image of God, and it's the same Hebrew word used here, what in the wide world is God doing, despising their image? And verse 19 says, the verse before, they're brought to destruction as in a moment they're utterly consumed with terrors. And the idea of the image here, it's, it's a rather nice one. Because it's like God has a sleep. This is figurative language, of course. God is sleeping as it, as it were. And like us, as it were, when he sleeps, sometimes we wake up and we have an image of the dream which we just had. We can remember a wee bit of it. And sometimes it's really vivid. And God, as it were, when he awakes, has the image of his dream that he just woke, and that was the ungodly. And God despises even the image that he has, that little bit of the memory of the dream. And therefore he he, he destroys them. Wow. But if the w- wicked were truly the image and likeness and glory of God, why would he do this? And then I think the other psalm, Psalm 17, verse 15, which was penned by David. Psalm 73 was penned by Asaph. David says, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Again, the word used in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. David says, as a believer, I will awake with God's likeness in the on the resurrection morn, and he will behold God's face in righteousness. And so when Paul, in Ephesians and Colossians, defines the image of God in terms of righteousness, it's already there from David's psalm, Psalm 17, verse 15. So Chris, you you have a question. Yes, uh, we have an anonymous listener who says, a lot of what you are saying makes, excuse me, makes sense, but how are we to view a basically and general dignified way to treat all of humanity 
if they are not all made in the image of God. We even in the United States at least and other parts of the civilized world have prison systems where we don't have people being tortured on racks and being skinned alive and being disemboweled and burned alive like the Church of Rome was once infamous for doing. We treat even those who are on death row and those who are violent criminals with a level of dignity and respect because we believe humans deserve this. Not that they are innately good or deserving of God's grace or anything like that, but that we just treat humans differently than animals, or at least we should. Uh, how then can we maintain this understanding of humankind while denying that they are made in the image of God? That's a very good question. And in fact, I remember being horrified years ago when I was listening to a radio interview. I'm not going to mention the person's name who was the guest. It wasn't my show. It was a different radio program. And the guest had such a overemphasis on Christianizing the earth through uh, basically breeding Christians, uh, having large families, and through procreation, we would eventually uh, assist in Christianizing the earth just because of the numbers. Uh, he had this a warped view that was overemphasizing that notion, and he, when he was asked about his views on abortion. I was shocked because the man, even though I disagreed with his views or his overemphasis on uh, procreation as a means of Christianizing the earth, uh, I was shocked to hear him say, now for the Christian, abortion is murder, and it's a damnable sin for a Christian to commit uh, that sin. But, as far as I'm concerned, let the wicked abort their babies out of existence. Let their family line come to an end, I don't care. I was shocked to hear him say that. Uh, obviously, I am I'm, I'm fairly certain you don't hold that view as well. And if you could answer the, the listener's question. We repudiate his, his ethics, and though I haven't time to prove it, I'm a, a, a fool of Christian Reconstructionism. I know it has done a lot of damage with some people here in Northern Ireland. So we condemn his ethics, that guy, and we condemn a system of theology. Of course, not all theonomists and Reconstructionists would agree with that gentleman's position. In fact, I would say it's probably a tiny minority. Yes, I would think that better of, of most of them, too. Yes. Go going back to the, the question, um, a very good question this too, and gives me a chance to explore some other issues. Uh, he, he mentioned, was it he or she? It was an anonymous person. Anonymous. Uh, the, the anonymous... Uh, person, um, mentioned that, that Rome, um, especially in the Middle Ages and around the time of the Reformation, uh, did some horrible things and murdered people and so forth. Here's the interesting thing is that Rome then and now steadfastly proclaims that everyone is in the image of God. So the Roman church, when they did that to people and all the horrible things that that church does where it has powered to, to attack Christians to this day, it didn't stop them believing that everybody is in the image of God. And, you know, if somebody says, well, if we don't believe that the image of God includes all the factors of, of, of man's humanity, we believe man's human language, rationality, personality, 
we believe that. We just don't put that into the image of God category. But Rome, you see, and, and Arminianism, they claim that, that uh, if you believe in total depravity, like the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 3, that total depravity threatens and denies man's humanity. And Arminianism teaches the same thing. It teaches the absolute sovereignty of God, denies man's humanity, and it makes man, this is the language from the cans of Dort, Dort, stocks and blocks. So if somebody says, you know, look, unless you teach, you know, the image of God, everybody's in the image of God, then man's not really man. Well, then you can say, well, maybe we have to deny total depravity too, because other groups will say, well, you're denying the humanity of man. And our response is to say, Genesis uh, 2, Genesis 11, indeed the whole of the Bible, man is language, man is tongue, man is able to relate to God. And one of the key things, of course, about man is that man is either for God or against God. He's intrinsically always in the sight of God. God knows him. He knows his thoughts, his words and deeds. God judges man at the last day. God's the God who created Adam and Eve in the beginning. He brings us all into existence. In God we live and move and have our being. Unbelievers, unbelievers too. And then when we come to the issue of ethics, it's very simple. The Ten Commandments, or rather the second table. You know, honor your father and mother. You know, whether your parents are, are in Christ or, or, or not, uh, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And the Bible's teaching is love your neighbor. And love your neighbor all by itself would, would deal with all those ethical issues. And Jesus taught us the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And in fact, one of the things that maybe isn't appreciated that, that widely is that the two classic texts, Ephesians 4, 24, Colossians 3, verse 10, which identify the nature of the image of God, come in intensely ethical context. So you've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, says Colossians 3, verse 10. And then it says, Christ is all in all, verse 11, is the unity of the church, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarians, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free. And then the next verse, verse 12 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, the elect of God in the image of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Verse 14, above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, that the peace of God rule in your hearts because you know, your, your knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, you're called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, singing with grace in your hearts. Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, you who are in the image of God, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him, and then it gives the calling of wives and husbands and children and fathers and servants or employees. And whatsoever ye do, you who are in the image of God, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. So all sorts of ethics come out of the image of God. That's just Colossians 3. I could go to Ephesians chapter 4 or 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. There's lots of rich rich scope there, so I hope the brother, uh, the anonymous person, is um, happy with that answer. Angus, I'd like you to summarize what you most want etched in the hearts and minds of our listeners today. 
regarding this subject of only the elect and more specifically the regenerate being made in the image of God. Chris, I'll sort of answer that one. I want our listeners to know that this truth about the image of God only in God's people, only through Jesus Christ, only by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and only through the gospel of sovereign grace, contrary to much of the opposing view, has a really powerful ethics. And besides all the texts that mention image and likeness, there are a whole host of them. Think of the word even as. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5. Because you're the image of God. Forgive one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3 verse 13. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. The even as is in the New Testament are all references to the image of God. Even as Christ did this, even as God does this, you're in his image. He who abides in Christ ought himself also to walk even as he walked. 1 John 2 verse 6. 1 John 3 verse 2. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is like him. Same word as likeness, image of God. And First Peter 1, Be ye holy, for I am holy. As he which has called you is holy, be ye holy. Second Peter 1, verse 4, Partakers of the new nature. Peter's just using different language. The image of God. The Bible is filled with it. Think even of Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, in the image, in the image of God, unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in him. The argument, too, for being imitators of Christ, because we're in his image. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You're in the image of Christ. The Bible is filled with it. Galatians 4, my little children of whom I travail in birth, again, until Christ be formed in you. The image of God. Chris, I do want to throw this in, because Reverend McGeown told me I should say this. And I always like to obey Reverend McGowan, if at all possible. He said, you've been talking about conferences. The British Reformed Fellowship Conference invites you, Chris, if you're able to make it, I know you're busy, and all your listeners to a conference in sunny Northern Ireland on the 11th to the 18th of July, week-long conference in Northern Ireland, Castle Wellen Conference, Castle Wellen Castle in 2020. Next year, 11th to 18th of July, on the theme, Union with Christ. Prof. David Engelsma and Reverend Andy Lanning are the main speakers. I'm seriously considering, because I'm going to give one of the Sunday sermons, Lord willing, speaking about Union with Christ, the main theme, in connection with the image of God. My wife would like me to do that. Union with Christ and the image of God. It's in a castle, in a forest, with a lake, where the only ones who are going to be there and... I'd like to invite people to that, especially they want to hear more about the image of God and its closeness to to this great theme of union with Jesus Christ. Now, should Armin- should Arminians be frightened to be in the woods in a castle with the Reformed people? <laughs> far, 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 far away from civilization, where no one can hear them. But anyway, I'm just kidding. Well, I would love to be there. Uh, I uh, don't know if my finances will enable me to be there, but I do know folks in Northern Ireland and in Ireland, so I will let them know about that. Uh, make sure you email me all of the details. 
Uh, before we go off the air, uh, Dr. Julian Kennedy, who's a member of your church, as you know, uh, sent in an email saying, uh, Pastor Angus has mentioned Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24 numerous times, but he needs to quote them again to spell out of what the image of God consists, knowledge of God, righteousness, and true holiness. Okay, Colossians 3, verse 10 says, We have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that is God that created him. There's the image of God, and creation here is the new creation, and it's renewed in knowledge. So the image of God in the new creation is knowledge, and it's the equivalent of the new man, which is contrasted with the old man in the previous verse. So there's knowledge, Colossians 3. Ephesians 4 verse 24 says you put on the new man that's like the image of God in Colossians 3 verse 10 which after God there again God is the model that image of God is created because we're recreated in the image of God just as Adam and Eve were created in it in the first, first place is created in righteousness and true holiness and those three things knowledge, righteousness and true holiness are equivalent to prophet, priest and king those three virtues of knowledge righteousness and holiness it's saving knowledge of God knowledge of trust and faith through Jesus Christ include all the ethical perfections God made man upright the creation is very good including man so all sorts of ethical virtues and spiritual realities are included in that my thanks to Julian he won't be okay. Famous, okay we're out of time brother and uh, I want to remind our listeners that the website for Covenant Protestant Reformed Church is cprc.co.uk that's cprc.co.uk and uh, I want to thank you so much for being my guest again I look forward to having you come back very soon Angus I want to thank everybody who listened uh, I hope that you all have a blessed and safe and joyful weekend and a Christ honoring Lord's Day and I want you all to always remember for the rest of your lives that Jesus Christ is a far greater Savior than you are a sinner. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at Hope rwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.